0: Chapter 18, May 1984, age 29. At the bustling LaGuardia Airport, Robert snatched his bag from the carousel, exited through the glass doors, and hailed a taxi. It had been 29 months since he walked in freedom among the rest of the New Yorkers. During that time, he served concurrent sentences at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York, for illegal possession of treasury checks and possession of a weapon. He also did time for a failed robbery. He and Angelo Sully, his lifelong friend, had planned to rob the owner of a factory on 102nd Street, just off of Atlantic Avenue. They knew he processed his payroll every week and paid his employees with cash. The plan was for Robert to take the man down as he returned from the bank, grab the payroll, and jump into the getaway car driven by Angelo. As they waited for the man, Robert grew impatient, and got out of the car to take a walk, leaving his gun behind. Angelo continued his slow drive around the block. Before he made it back, the man showed up with the payroll. Instead of waiting for Angelo to come back around the block so he could get the gun, Robert assaulted the business owner in front of the factory. The man struggled with Robert, clinging onto the bank bag that held about $5,000 in cash. As the two men struggled, some of the man's employees saw the commotion outside. Seeing the business owner in harm's way and their hard-earned money about to be stolen, they went to the aid of their boss and were able to pin Robert to the ground. Angelo observed what had happened to Robert from across the street and took off in the car, putting distance between him and the crime scene. But it wasn't long before he had a change of heart, rounded the block, and returned to try to convince the men to let Robert go. When the cops arrived, they arrested both Robert and Angelo after finding the weapon inside the car Angelo was driving. Prison time was less than desirable, but what was much worse to Robert was the mark of humiliation indelibly printed on his reputation. After a reunion with his family, his brother-in-law, Paulie told Robert that Nicky wanted to see him. Robert went to the Knights of Columbus meeting hall on Pacific Street, where he met Nicky. It's about time you came to see me, Nicky said as he walked out the front door and hugged Robert. Yeah, sorry, I just, I know what you've been up to. The words were strong, but Robert did not sense any malice behind them. Still, knowing Nikki's mantra of never show your feelings settled in the back of Robert's mind. The uncertainty of the situation came with much angst. Let's take a walk, Nikki said, and the two men headed up the street. Some things went on while you were away. Really? I don't know if you've heard, but a lot has changed. Robert nodded his head, not sure where Nikki was going with the conversation. So what's been going on with you? I haven't seen you in quite a while, even before you went to the pen. Just hanging out, Nicky, that's all. Nicky didn't take his eyes off of Robert. You know, make a couple of dollars here, a couple of bucks there. Yeah, I heard about all that too. Robert started biting his fingernail. Look, Nicky, it's not like... Forget about it. It's all water under the bridge. But I've got to be honest with you, kid. Anybody else would have gotten a bullet in the back of the head for the stuff you pull. Robert had done several things that made him worthy of being oft, so he wasn't exactly sure what Nicky was referring to. He could have meant the jewelry heist of which Nicky never got his cut, or his drug usage. He could have also been referring to Robert's suicide attempts while in prison. Even though Robert was trying to manipulate the warden into giving him a furlough, it still made Robert look weak in the eyes of his mafia brothers. Nicky shook his head. This life, it's over for you. He took out a wad of $20 bills and handed them to Robert. He hugged Robert again and then held him at arm's length. Believe me, Robert, this is the better way for you. Robert and Cece had just finished dinner at Russo's and were walking out to the dim parking lot lit only by two lampposts that had escaped the fate of the other six vandalized lights. I don't know if I want to go out tonight. Robert said to Cece. His meeting with Nicky had left him in a foul mood. Why not, she said. I just don't feel like it. He handed her the keys. Take me home, then you can drive yourself home. They got into the 1984 Buick Century and within a few minutes pulled in front of Robert's parents' place on Richmond Street. You can pick me up tomorrow, he said as he exited the vehicle. What are you going to do tonight? I don't know. Watch the game? Sleep? I'm just not feeling up to hanging out tonight. Okay. Robert shut the door and went inside. No one was home. After shedding his shoes, he got a beer out of the fridge, turned on the TV, and found the New York Jets, battling it out with the Pittsburgh Steelers on ABC's Monday Night Football. It was already nearing halftime, and it appeared to be an intensely close game. Throughout the next two quarters, Robert yelled, screamed, and cursed at the TV applauding the Jets when they made a great play, but then calling them all morons when the Steelers would score against them. He held on to the hope of a come-from-behind victory, but the Steelers ended up handing the Jets a gut-wrenching 23-17 loss. Instead of winding down, the game energized Robert. After turning the TV off around 11 o'clock, Robert dialed CeCe's phone number to see if she still wanted to go out. After four rings, the answering machine took over, with her voice informing all callers that they know what to do. Thinking she might be asleep, Robert called two more times, several minutes apart, and got the same result. He slipped his shoes back on, walked past the TV, which now was airing the delayed local news, and began the one-and-a-half-mile trek to her place. He thought that even if she didn't want to go out, he could get the car and cruise around until he found his friends at one of their usual clubs. He was still a couple hundred feet away from C.C.'s apartment building, but even from that distance and despite the darkness, he could easily see that the car wasn't there. Instead of stopping, he continued walking to Bruce's house, a friend who lived nearby. With each step, his concern grew. At that point in their relationship, he and C.C. had been together for about four years, and he knew how insatiable her desire for male attention was, whether his or someone else's. And it was only a few months ago when he learned about an affair she had while he was in prison. The thought quickened his pace and fed his anxiety. Bruce lived just down the street and a block over. So it wasn't long before Robert was at the basement knocking at the door. When Bruce answered, Robert looked past him and saw Cece on the couch. Next to her was Bruno. Her arm was on his leg. Robert, Bruce said, more as an alarm to alert Cece than as a greeting. Robert stared at Cece and then said to Bruce, tell her to come out. Robert, she, tell her to come out, Bruce, now. By then Cece was at the door. She nodded at Bruce to let him know it was okay and then closed the door behind her. Robert, I thought you, Robert's roundhouse punch caught Cece in the jaw, sending her to the ground unconscious. Robert clenched his jaw in rhythm with his fists, He was so angry, he felt like he could destroy the whole house and everyone in it. Yet the small part of sanity that remained prevented him from doing it. He threw Cece over his shoulder and tramped straight to the car. With his one free hand, he opened the passenger side door and roughly put Cece into the seat. He then locked the door and shut it before getting in on the other side. By then, Cece was coming around and starting to cry. Just kill me. I'd be better off if you'd just kill me. I'm seriously considering it, Robert said, as he squealed the tires leaving Bruce's house. By the time they arrived at Cece's place, she was fully conscious, and Robert had lost his interest in killing her. He slowed the car enough to let her out, and then sped away. Sometime after the incident at Bruce's house, Robert, Frankie Burke, and Ronnie Truchio were getting high when their supply ran dry. Frankie suggested they go to Howard Beach to replenish their coke stash, so they got in Robert's car and drove around. During their search for more drugs, the conversation came up about the incident at Bruce's house. "'This is the worst kind of disrespect,' he told them. Frankie nodded his head in agreement. "'The worst,' Ronnie replied. "'I know where Bruno lives,' Frankie chimed in. "'This surprised Robert, since Frankie liked Cece, and Bruno was a friend of his as well. "'Do you want to make a visit?' At this point, revenge was not on Robert's mind, but since Frankie brought it up, he felt obligated to do something. Yeah, let's head over there. Let's go, Frankie repeated. Bruno's place was across town, so Robert had a lot of time to build up his anger. They discussed the plan. Frankie would knock on the door. When Bruno answered, Robert would bust in while Ronnie and Frankie prevented any escape. They decided not to be concerned with disposing of the body. They came to a halt in front of the red clapboard house where Bruno lived. Frankie pointed to the right side of the house. He'll answer that door. Robert pursed his lips and then nodded. He looked into the back seat where Ronnie was. You ready to do this? Looking forward to it. He looked back at Frankie. You lead. The three men got out of the car, looking in all directions for any reason to call off the hit. Feeling confident no one was around, they approached the unlit house, concealed by darkness. When they got to the porch, Ronnie unscrewed the light bulb in the fixture next to the door Frankie had pointed at earlier, just in case Bruno tried to turn it on. Frankie looked at the other two men. Robert gave the go-ahead nod as he removed his knife from his pocket. Frankie knocked. No response. He knocked harder. Bruno! A light in the front room came on a few seconds later. The three men heard the light switch flip. Ronnie grinned. Who's there? It's me, Bruno. Open up, Frankie said, making sure he didn't identify himself in case an unseen witness was in earshot. They heard the bolts to the locks being thrown and the doorknob turned. What? You too stoned to remember where you live? Robert threw his shoulder into the door, causing Bruno to stumble backwards. Robert swore at him. You think it's okay to mess around with another man's woman? He lunged at Bruno. The blade of his knife sunk into his neck. Robert pulled it out, ready to do it again. Despite his injury, Bruno stayed on his feet and maneuvered his way around Robert, who failed to land another strike. Ronnie and Frankie were waiting for Bruno at the open doorway. Initially, they caught him, but during the struggle, Bruno managed to get free and run out of the house and into the darkness, which now played in his favor. They started to chase after him, but a voice yelled out from the house next to Bruno's. What's going on out there? I'm going to call the cops. Instead of pursuing Bruno, the three men got back into the car and drove away. Robert never saw Bruno again. The days following the stabbing, Robert avoided his usual hangouts and stayed at a friend's apartment. In the meantime, Ronnie was out and about, getting a feel of what the situation was like. He learned that Bruno survived the attack and went to one of the wise guys from another crew seeking retribution. The wise guy apparently told him he had no beef, since he shouldn't have been messing around with Cece, and added that he had better leave the neighborhood if he wanted to stay alive.